The year is 2011. And why can't you just listen to our podcast and talk about it behind our backs like a normal person? The movie? Bridesmaids. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are looking to find the 100 best movies of all time. We started with the AFI Top 100 Films list, and now we are going genre by genre to find the best films around the world. But right now we are staying here in the U.S. as we explore summer blockbusters. And it's not only deep into this miniseries, but it is our second week of doing a blockbuster comedy, Bridesmaids, Amy, back-to-back with Hangover. So interesting. This movie was gigantic, and I cannot wait to talk to you about it, because I don't know if you're like me, but I haven't seen this movie in in a long, long time. Me neither. I think I saw this movie twice the week it came out. And I'm not sure I've watched it end to end since then. So 10 years later, 10 years later. And yet in the last 10 years, all we've done is talk about this movie in a larger scale. Bridesmaids, Bridesmaids Effect, the next Bridesmaids. What's going to be the next Bridesmaids? We've talked about Bridesmaids, but now it's time to actually talk about the film, 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 and not just the cultural conversation around it. And just a reminder that we've been having great conversations on our Discord. You can go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear, and uh, there's a whole unspooled area there. You can join in the conversation because uh, the conversations about The Fugitive and Speed have still been going on uh, till this very moment, which has been great. Um, I love that we have this amazing community there. And we also are asking this community to help us right now because uh, we realize we don't have a Wikipedia page. So if anyone wants to take that upon themselves to help build out our Wikipedia page, it would be amazing because a lot of people have been asking as we barrel towards uh, the end of our first year off the AFI list, what are some movies that you've done. We, we are having a hard time keeping track of all the different movies because they're not on the list anymore. So we want to make sure that we have a place for you to go online to see everything that we've done in the order that we have done it. So uh, if there's any tech-savvy people out there, we can help you out uh, and give you whatever you need. But uh, we would love to have a fully functioning wiki. I mean, I got one for my feet. Yeah, so me too. So why not have one, one for my feet? <laughs> Let's not have it for the podcast. Yeah, how do we both have one for our feet and we don't have one for the podcast? I am a size 10. You don't have to bother looking it up. Oh, my but, goodness. And a big shout out to whoever takes my Instagram photos and puts them on wiki feet. Thank you for that. I love it. Um, all right, Amy, there's so much to talk about. Are you ready just to dive right in? Am I ever? Well, let's unspool it. The year is 2011, an earthquake with a nine- Magnitude rocks the coast of Japan, causing a tsunami and leading to meltdowns at the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Occupy Wall Street protests highlight income inequality and pop up throughout the country. U.S. Navy SEALs find and assassinate Osama bin Laden. Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords is shot in an attempted assassination but survives. Charlie Sheen, well, he's got tiger blood and Amy Winehouse becomes the latest superstar to die at 27. The hot movies of the year are Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, The Hangover Part 2, Cars 2, Fast Five, and today's film, 
bridesmaids. Now, Amy, I just would be remiss uh, in saying, like, you know, we talked about this idea where sequels have taken over, and we are firmly in that time in this uh, this year of 2011. I mean, these are all sequels, and I think one of the really cool things about this movie was it was an original comedy, which is also sometimes so refreshing. But tell us. And it is the first movie we've done this entire summer blockbuster series that has not succumbed to making a sequel. Yes. Look at that. So (laughs) without any further ado, Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? And I want to hear what song was popular in the moment. All right, let's get into it, baby. Bridesmaids. It is directed by Paul Feig and written by two women who were old friends when they wrote the script, Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo. They met in the early 2000s at the Groundlings and then wound up writing this film, which is the story of two old friends, Annie and Lillian. Annie is played by Kristen Wiig. Lillian is played by Maya Rudolph. And these friends have their bond tested when Annie feels like she's getting pushed out of Maya's intimate circle because she is just pretty much mediocre at planning bridal events while Maya Rudolph's new friend, Helen, who's played by Rose Byrne, is like amazing at them and gets to move into the circle and take over as maid of honor. Uh, This film is a really big ensemble cast. You've got Wendy McClendon-Covey. You've got Ellie Kemper. You've got Melissa McCarthy. They're all the fellow bridesmaids. You've got the introduction in Hollywood of Rebel Wilson as Annie's, I'd say, unnerving roommate. And you've got John Hamm and Chris O'Dowd as the men who are kind of sort of in Annie's pretty miserable life. Take a listen. Excuse me. Hi. I'm looking for a birthday gift for my best friend. Oh. I want to get her a necklace that says best friends forever. You sure you want it to say forever? Yeah, why? Come on. Forever? Forever? I don't think you guys will be best friends forever. No offense, but, you know, <laughs> the friends you have when you're younger, sometimes, sometimes you grow apart. You know, when you get older and maybe she'll find a new best friend. And maybe she'll be more successful than you are and prettier and richer and skinnier and they end up doing everything together. You're, you're weird. I'm not weird, okay? Yes, you are. No, I'm not, and you started it. No, you started it. Did you forget to take your Xanax this morning? God, I feel bad for your parents. I feel bad for your face. Okay, well, call me when your boobs come in. You call me when yours come in. What, do you have four boyfriends? Exactly. Yeah, okay. Have fun having a baby at your prom. You look like an old mop. You know what? You're not as popular as you think you are. I'm very popular. Oh, I'm sure you are. Very popular. Well, you're an old, single loser who's never going to have any friends. You're a little cunt. Bridesmaids opened on May 11th, 2011, and it went on to make $288 million worldwide. Not bad, ladies. Uh, and I have to admit, when I looked up the number one song on the Billboard charts that weekend, I had never heard about it. It is a song about screwed up, destructive love, which I guess a lot of songs about love are. And I think if I had maybe heard the song ever at like an H&M or something, I probably thought it was a remix of a tattoo song. But... As we're about to have a conversation about whether or not Bridesmaids deserves to be one of the great movies worthy of being blast off, blasted off into space, the one interesting thing about this song is that it could not have a better name for that conversation. It is called E.T. and it is by Katy Perry. Yeah. 
Amy, you don't know this song? No. I love this song. I mean, look, this is like prime uh, Katy Perry action here. This is like, I think she had a hit every song in that album was a hit. And I don't know why I remember this one. Maybe it was the video. But uh, yeah, I'm familiar. I am familiar. This is uh, I'm living my best life here, rocking out to <laughs> Katy Perry in my Prius, driving around town. Well, you probably went to weddings that summer. They were blasting this song, I'm guessing. Oh, absolutely. Come on. I mean, I, when I looked up the video online, I have to admit, as I waded into the comments, all the comments were, this video gave me nightmares as a child. Well, it's very like microcosmos, right? It's like uh, things exploding, like, you know, like a flower blooming and right. Isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. She's got like deer legs and she makes out with a robot who becomes a hot man. And then there's like a, a deer who seems like it's dying somewhere. Kind of uh, a little bit like that uh, Scarlett Johansson movie, Under the Skin, right? Or Underneath the Skin. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if that met um, Melancholia, but also <laughs> Katy Perry was there as a space alien looking like she's from Avatar. It's a lot of things. I love it. Uh, I will tell you this much. Uh, Katy Perry will always hold a special place in my heart because uh, we were watching her documentary uh, when um, my wife... My wife, uh, Borat impression, there you go, uh, went wow, into... Thank you, thank you for identifying that. Yeah, you know, Borat. Um, went into labor with our first child. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, we were watching that, and then we attempted to watch it while we were waiting, because, you know, one of the big misconceptions of uh, of giving birth is that it just happens. Until you've done it, you're like, oh, right, it's a very long process. It's not like, ah, I'm going into labor and then the baby doesn't come out in like two minutes. That's, that is a movie uh, thing, or at least it seems to be. Uh, but yeah, we were trying to rewatch it. So I remember rewatching the Katy Perry documentary multiple times in that weird space of like 12 hours before the baby actually came out. Wow. Were you able to focus on the documentary or were you no, just not? God, no, God, no, God, yeah. no, 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 no. I mean, I, Aww, yeah. Uh, but you were we, about to be a daddy. I was, I was. It was a great documentary. I mean, from what I remember of it, I remember her crying and then being launched up into the air and performing flawlessly. Uh, I am a fan. Um, I will also say I'm a fan of many people in this movie. And just like last week, my caveat stays the same. I know these people. These people are my friends. I have worked with a large amount of people in this cast numerous times. And um, I believe, I hope I'm not making this up, I was at the table read for this film as well. So I have been around this movie uh, very much so. So I will be biased and I'm just going to get it out of the way right at the top and go, this belongs in space. Get this in space. I love this movie. I'm surprised at how much I love this movie because I haven't rewatched it. And throughout my entire experience rewatching it, I was like, God damn, this movie is really well done. And I just want to zoom in on one thing and say, I think it all falls on the shoulders of Kristen Wiig being a fantastic comedic actress, but also pulling off these very small dramatic moments and these little fluctuations. I, I'm just, I love Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. And that clearly is kind of the vein that uh, Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo really love to exist in. And I would love to have seen the original script for Bridesmaids because it probably would have been a little bit more in that vein. This feels a little bit more Apatow, uh, Paul Feig touched. But um, Kristen Wiig is just a goddamn powerhouse in this movie. I mean, I can't, I, I, was really 
just blown away because I think what I realized in watching this 10 years later is that so many people are trying to do what she does here. And some people are very good at doing it, but she is knocking it out of the park here as a a fully realized performance. It's big, it's small, it's funny, it's dramatic, it's real, it's everything. You know what? I will tell you that I was really nervous about watching this movie because I was so terrified that it was going to be bad. Yeah. Um, Because I think a thing has happened to my brain over the last 10 years where because this movie has just become shorthand for talking about women in movies. Right. It's become just like an adjective. There was something in the way we've talked about this movie over the last 10 years that had reduced it in my imagination to like a trial balloon in starting and ending the conversation about can women be funny, which was Mm. just so tedious. It signified to me like a conversation I was sick of having. And I think I was taking it out on my memory of this movie and thinking, right, wasn't it just some sort of crass hangover type of film with a lot of girls? And going back and realizing how badly I have misremembered this movie was wonderful. I'm so grateful that we did this. Well, I think, you know, unfortunately, when you have a movie that is... Um, a juggernaut. And we've experienced this numerous times in the show, especially in the AFI list. It is remembered for its most base uh, scenes and its most broad uh, legacy, right? And I think that this movie, the legacy is, um, it launched the careers of so many people who are hugely famous right now. Um, it also just continued to solidify uh, Apatow and Paul Feig's dominance in this arena. Um, but you're right. I think that in all the conversation about how good this film is and why isn't there more of a film like this, we have forgotten why this movie is important, why this movie is hilarious, because it is a great movie. Like, it is just a hands-down great film. And I... and. I will say that going into The Hangover last week, I was a little bit more excited to go back and rewatch it. And this one, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I'm, you know, I felt like it will probably be the same kind of experience. Like, oh, there was some good stuff in here, but, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm on a different page. And I think 10 years later, looking at this movie and going, it holds up perfectly. And the performances are just it's just a great universal film as far as not universal the company but like it i think this movie can exist for a very long time it has very universal themes and great performances and it's uh it's just really well done well let's just jump right in and start talking about this film and let's just start with that opening scene you know like this is a film that opens with kristen wig having horrible uncomfortable sex with John Hamm where he's like blowing in her hair and she's trying to speak up for her needs and what she'd like to have in bed. And he's not really paying any attention to her. And when this scene kicked off this movie, kind of here was my thought process. I was like, Oh, right. That's right. This movie was like, women are raunchy. Look at us go. And then two minutes into it, I remembered that this film is actually not like that at all, that this is a film about a character who is lying to herself about her needs and her wants and is like a really kind of broken person 
you know, and that's what the sex scene represents in the film. You know, like that she has this night with John Hamm, who makes like the worst sex faces on the planet in this film. Like, congratulations to him. He really understood his assignment in like, be John Hamm as a figure of lust, but also make it look terrible. Oh, I mean, it's interesting that he went uncredited in this film because at this point he wasn't known for doing uh, comedies or popping up in comedies and didn't want to give off the idea that it would be uh, a more of a dramatic film. So I think for the audience to even see him in here, this is the beginning of the John, you know, John Hamm on 30 Rock and John Hamm popping up. You know, John Hamm is now Fletch. You know, uh, he's shooting that right now. Uh, So John has been... In so many different things. Now I think we know like, oh, there's some things he does that are comedic and some things he does that are dramatic. But at this point, it was even more of a, I think, a shock value for those that were fans of Mad Men to see him doing something so big and funny. And, you know, the scene at towards the end where he's like trying to convince her to give him a blowjob in his Porsche after her car breaks down is so like he plays, he's definitely one of the more heightened characters in, in this movie, but uh, he plays this like douchebag really, uh, really real. It's so funny. Uh, I love, I just love that character. Me too. And so, you know, it opens up with like them having this night in the morning. She sneaks away to kind of put on her lipstick and like adjust her hair and climb back into bed, which is such a relatable moment, like incredibly relatable. And then they have this conversation that I find just like agonizing, where he is trying to get her just to leave his house and leave him alone alone and kind of reestablish that they don't mean anything to each other. And she is trying to act like that's totally okay with her. And you can just hear in her voice how hard she's trying to act like this is okay, like how out of touch I would say she really is with how she feels. Yeah, I love hanging out with you. I think we get along really well, and you're so sexy and... I know. Mm. I just, you know, I just want to have a lot coming up at oh. work, and, and, and I just, I don't want to make promises I can't keep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know you do. Yeah. We're on the same page. I mean, I don't, I'm not looking for a relationship right now either. Let's just say that. I just, whatever you want to, I can do, you know, I'd rather just... I like simple, not like other girls where I'm like, be my boyfriend. Unless you were like, yeah. Then I'd be like, maybe. <laughs> I don't want that either. But yeah, like I want to talk about why I think they started the movie with this scene, right? Because this is so much a movie that's about female friendship. Like that is the heart and the soul, the entire tenor of this movie. But the script decides to start here with this glimpse of her outside of of her friendship with with Maya Rudolph. And like, why do you think that is like, do you have a thought about it? Because I'm, I'm kind of thinking about it, too. Well, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about this opening sequence and I don't want to pull you off track. But this is a movie about Kristen Wiig. And yes, it's about her friendship and it's about uh, this time in her life. But to your point, it is about establishing who she is, how she wants to be perceived, and and where there is a lack of connection between those two things. You know, and I think this this opening moment does a brilliant job in laying out everything about her. She is competent, she's smart, she is settling. Uh, she also has dignity, but she is seen losing dignity. Uh, she is powerful, but then low status. Like there's so much 
that gets to the root of this character in this opening scene. And I guess I'll just say one more thing because I want to hear what you want to say about this. But what I love about this scene is it's not one note. It starts off with the funny sex, a big, funny opening, you know, visually funny opening. And then, like you said, it goes into all these other beats. It's like there are 10 different types of jokes in this opening moment until you get to her climbing over the uh, garage door opener and she's caught there. And I'm guessing it's the housekeeper that catches her like on this, you know, straddling this uh, this door because she's too embarrassed to ask to be let out. It's so it's it just keeps on heightening. And I think that's when I really leaned in again on this movie. It's like, wow, a lot of comedies just go for like, this is the scene and this is the joke. And then we move to the next thing. And here it really is a beautifully crafted and incredibly layered examination of this character all within you know, five minutes in about one location. I totally agree. I totally agree because, you know, it establishes really clearly that like he has all of the cards in this relationship, but she is not as much as she's being pushed over. There's something in her that is not a pushover, you know, to be like, oh, well, I can't get out of this gate. I'll just climb. You know, like I would rather put it on my own shoulders to do this work, to climb over the gate and that, you know, and not make like a big deal of it. Like she's trying to be a stronger, tough person who can take care of her own needs. And then to have the gate open on her while she's half over is just like agony. But then you put this scene of like a person who's like clearly not able to be who she is, like right up at the start of the film. And you establish like, right, as you're saying, how big of a gap there is between the person that she wants to be seen as and the person that she is. And then you immediately followed up with this scene that she has with like her real soulmate in the film, you know, Maya Rudolph and how they're two girls who can have breakfast together and just like be themselves. You suddenly see her go from being false to being completely herself with this friend, you know, and it's lovely to get to see that change in her just right off at the top of the bat to see all of these ranges in the character. And not to keep on belaboring it, but this opening scene is an overture, a comedic overture for what you're about to see in this film, which is there are broad moments, there are real moments, there are subtle moments. Um, and what Kristen is able to do in this opening scene is show you again how great of an actor she is because she's going from, She's basically playing all the instruments in this opening scene. You're going to see her play throughout the entire film. Vulnerable, uh, embarrassed, broad, uh, silly, empowered. You get to see it all. And I think it's an important thing, I think, to do in a comedy to have an opening scene that tonally puts you in the mindset for what you are about to see. And who you are about to follow. Because she is the movie. We have to like her when she's being bad. We have to believe in her when she is failing. We have to we have to be behind her 100%. And this opening scene firmly aligns you with her. Like, there's no way that you uh, are going to... You see yourself in her. We've all been in those situations. Regardless of the specifics, we've all been in that the moment like that. Exactly. And I think that that, to me, is what makes this film really special is, yeah, you immediately see parts of yourself in this character. And yet this film is not 
necessarily about a person who is like wonderful and bad things happen to her. And you're like, I've got you, girl. Like the movie really hinges on the fact that towards the end of the film, this person that we're giving all of our empathy to and our support to is going to get told that she is also responsible for a lot of the drama that is happening in her life and a lot of the mess that's happening in her life. And it's a really kind of tricky reversal that this film does because usually you have your heroine come out and it's all about the struggle that she faces to get what she wants against like maybe a certain villain who's like holding her back, but it's like externalized. There's like a force that's like defeating her or a person who's being terrible and if when this like person gets their comeuppance, our heroine's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm just really struck by the fact that this is a movie that doesn't do that. Like you sort of have this figure who's, you know, traumatizing her and setting up all of her insecurities in like Rose Burns, Helen, you know, person who's like competent and wealthy and knows exactly what to do and say in all of the right occasions. But the point that the film is driving to is that Kristen Wiig's life is a disaster, not because of Rose Byrne, but just because of herself, because of the choices she's making and the fact that she can be a little selfish and the fact that she can be, you know, lazy and getting her own work done, you know, like building towards this idea that we could all be doing better in our lives. And and like the things that go wrong are not necessarily the fault of a villain, which I find to be a really complicated indie movie, indie Sundance movie kind of argument for a big comedy to be making. I mean, I love it when you hear it maybe the best when Chris O'Dad yells at her about her taillights, that at the beginning of the film, she has not gotten her taillights fixed in like a year. She continues to not get them fixed and he is just done with it. Look, I've had a horrible day. I don't need a lecture from you right now, okay? I just, Helen, just... Oh, don't... This didn't happen because of Helen. This happened because you didn't get your taillights fixed. It's pretty simple. Do you have any idea how frustrating it is to see you night by night drive past me with your fucking taillights still broken? Do you have any idea how crazy that makes me? It's a simple solution. Your problem, Annie, is that you just don't understand that you can hurt people with these broken lights. I love this scene and I love that relationship. We'll get into that relationship in a little bit. Um, but what the taillight represents is to me a lot more indicative of the way that we all are in not making changes in our lives, right? It, it like, you know, I think movies like to show a big thing like I'm finally boxing up my bong and I'm, you know, I'm going to get a job now. I'm going to put on a suit. Like, I think there's always these very big moments like my life is changing. But, you know, very rarely. And I think this is probably because we've we've seen this idea of like the what do they call that? The like the baby man, the man baby or oh, like man child. Yeah, man child. We've seen man. I mean, child baby and, man is fun. I like baby, baby man. man. We've yeah. seen baby man a lot. And I think what we're showing here is you don't have to be a man child. You can also just be like someone who just can't get it together. I think it's more like she doesn't need to do anything too extreme. It's like it, like that little detail is enough that I think identify like we all have those, again, these little things that we don't do. It doesn't mean that like she's going to be a different person tomorrow. Like she's learning, like I got to grow up. It's, it's less about that. And it's more about like taking care of herself, you know, taking care of, of who she is in the world and respecting 
her car, which is a part, you know, like I, I know that these are, you know, like who cares about the car in the movie, but it is something about respecting yourself. And I think we've all been in situations where our car has been disgustingly dirty, you know, and then you get into that zone where you're like, I'm going to throw another fucking water bottle on the floor and I don't care. And it's covered and you're, you haven't washed it in forever. And then it becomes this battle of like, I'm not going to ever wash it or I should wash it. I do want to wash it. And like the car is a great, having a dirty car is who I am, man. It's like my yeah. identity now. Like I'm the person who just has a shit car. Well, and that I think there there is a great metaphor for your state of mind about your desk or your car. It's like these certain things that can identify us. And I love that that is the through line in this film. And it's not like, you know, her business failed, not because she was bad, not because she was lazy, not because of anything, but because of the recession. And that makes sense. And it's like, and that's luck and that's life. It doesn't mean she was a bad anything, right? You know, we we see these we see these things and she's struggling to make ends meet, but she's not, she's not, um, lazy. She's not a pothead. She's not like, she's not the traditional things. She is, I think more representative of most people that I grew up with, you know, that are, that's trying to get their shit together. And sometimes it's hard. The world works against you sometimes, but maybe there are certain things that we are doing too, that help, uh, keep us down. To me, Almost like even more than the fact that this is like a huge cast full of women, that this is a movie where like the jokes and the POV have a really like feminine angle to most of them. Mm -hmm. This movie is unusual because it's a film about like, you know, the relatable situation of knowing that you are in part the architect of your own depressive state that you exist in. And not because you're a bad person, but just because things have happened to you that like bad breaks happen. And what are you going to do about it that will move you forward? You know, can you just accept that like, yes, your your boyfriend left you when your cake business failed? And yes, that sucks. And it deserves to suck. It's okay that it sucks. But what are you going to do about it next? Right. And that in the and it that message in the film creeps up on you so slowly. That's what I find really astonishing about it is you're not at the beginning like, uh oh, what's your problem? Let your cake business fail. Oh, no. Right. You care so much about the position that she's in. And you are in her point of view of not really even seeing that it's her fault or that anything that she's doing is playing into it for a really, really, really long time. Well, and so I, when yeah. this movie about faces and when Melissa McCarthy is like, you're an asshole. It's startling because it's like realizing that you've been an asshole. You know, it feels right, like kind of right. a cold truth because you don't feel like that. And then you realize Melissa McCarthy's absolutely right. Well, and I'll, I'll just go back and say that, you know, part of this script, I think the idea was conceived by Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo, and they made this movie and, and Judd Apatow at this point, I think was known for making a movie putting someone in it, that person being very funny, and then making the next movie with them, whether it was Jonah Hill, whether it was Kristen Wiig, who is in Knocked Up, you know, all these people like Knocked Up in many ways is like the baseline for where everybody expanded to the next movies. You know, everyone kept on growing out of them, you know, Seth Rogen and Jonah and, and Kristen Wiig, everyone got almost a little bit of a spinoff. And Paul Feig, I think has this amazing ability to get to these moments of truth. And I don't know why this image is coming to my head, but I feel like it will make sense when I say it. But when you look at like Martin Starr and Freaks and Geeks, 
you know, which is a Paul Feig, Judd Apatow joint. Uh, there's this, this moment of like Martin Starr's character just like laughing, watching. Um, oh my gosh, now I feel like I'm going to mess it all up. But correct me if I'm wrong on the internet, like Gary Shandling on The Tonight Show and just laughing so hard and so such an earnest moment of like being... It's a very reflective show, I think, that that show like shows like the freaks and the geeks uh, and shows like what is behind them when their guard's down. These are the characters that are the jokes on the show and they were the leads of the show. And you got to understand and, and identify with them and see them in joyful moments and sad moments. And he creates very three-dimensional uh, comedy characters. And I think that this movie really thrives with that touch. It becomes, it doesn't become something like, uh, and not that I'm going to compare these two, but I will. Barb and Star, which is so fucking funny and giant and and also has like a heart and a grounding to it um, that is wonderful. And I, and I love seeing Annie and Kristen, who came up together in The Groundlings, do that movie together as co-stars and not just have Annie in a very small part like she is in the airplane in this movie. Um, they're, they're electric together. Uh, but I just love that I think... Paul is very aware of creating these real relationships. And I think Maya Rudolph, I've been talking a lot about Kristen Wiig, but Maya Rudolph is amazing in this film as well. Like no one is a bad person. Like even though, you know, we are, we are against the other person planning their wedding, I mean, Rose Byrne, she's not a bad person. Like even that last moment in the movie, when she comes up and she's like, it was good, right? The party was good. It was a good, it was a good wedding. Like there's a neediness there for her too. You see the neediness. Like everybody is revealed to have all these issues. No one is the perfect person. John Hamm isn't the perfect person. You know, the, these people are flawed and how they act dictate how people react to them and how they are perceived. But I think he does a really good job of balancing that out. There's a very long way around to say that I just think that that it's rare to see such three-dimensional characters across the board uh, in a film. No, I totally agree. Like, um, I hope that this is not too incendiary to say, but I feel like one of the things that distinguishes Paul Feig from Judd Apatow as directors in my mind and here I am kind of cribbing actually for one of my friends who pointed this out to me is that like when Judd Apatow finds a talent that he really likes to work with, if he's directing it, usually the thing that he pulls out of that person and their story is like, who are you in love with and how is it going? You know, he's like, right. you're an interesting weirdo. Let's make a movie about who are you in love with and how is it going? And, you know, sometimes these films are good. And then other times you're like, that's not the most interesting thing about this person. Like with Amy Schumer, when they when they do a movie together, I'm like, I don't really care. Like, I would like rather see Amy Schumer doing anything else with her life than having to make a movie about like, how are you going to grow up and fall in love? And I appreciate that for Paul Feig, that doesn't feel like the centerpiece of his interest in these characters. He just wants to let them be in whatever kind of intermingling mess they get themselves in trouble with. Like, it's nice that she maybe falls in love with Chris O'Dowd at the end, but that's not the right. cure of this movie. Yes. Like it's not the solution. And in, in even in romantic comedy worlds, 
this is a movie that doesn't even believe in like the big romantic comedy staple, which is like the grand gesture that makes somebody forgive you. Like here, when she realizes Chris O'Dowd is mad at her, she keeps trying some grand gestures and it doesn't work Well, because movies don't work like that. And there's a credibility to a Paul Feig story where he's like, no, no, you're an asshole. And somebody still gets to be mad at you because it's okay to have boundaries. Well, let me talk to you about something you just said, because I feel like what you just pointed out is something that I never really have articulated, but I think I felt. This is not a movie about growing up. This is a movie about getting better. Yeah. Right? And and I think a lot of the times growing up is the substitute for like, oh, you got to grow up. No, we are on a journey of getting better. Every single one of us, whether it's a slow journey or a long journey, we all, I hope are trying to be better than we were the day before. And sometimes we may backslide. But that, to me, is way more relatable. I've Yes, I've moved out of my parents' house. I, I, I don't have trouble, like, showing up to work. Um, but I do have trouble sometimes getting myself out of my own ruts, getting myself out of my own way. And that, and that to me going back to my earlier statement of why this movie goes up in space is because that is something that will, that is a universality that you will always get. Like I can identify, I can enjoy a movie where someone's like getting their life together, but this is about just getting themselves better and making themselves better. She's going to stumble. She's going to fall. She's not perfect at the end of this, but nothing majorly changes either. It's like, it's not like these big broad strokes, which I think are maybe cheats. She changes in that she takes some responsibility for, like, letting the situations in her life, the dominoes kind of line up as they do. But, like, that's just a life skill that then you carry forward. You know, she's probably going to let her taillights burn out again, and maybe she'll fix them a little quicker. That would be nice. Yeah. Like, but right. it's not like her disasters aren't so big that they have to get fixed. She's not like passed out drunk in an alley somewhere. Like, no, you and, know. I, and I like Chris O'Dowd, but if she doesn't like end up with him, that's fine too. Yeah, right? it's you know fine. I mean? Yeah, it's fine. Well, yeah, because what? Their, their relationship falls apart slowly over four disasters, which is a mm-hmm. lot of disasters when you think about it. Right. But they're all fascinating. I mean, like the first disaster is at that first like engagement party reception with the toast. You know, and the kind of warring toasts back and forth, which were apparently like sort of improvised, not entirely improvised, but like Paul Feig being like, ladies just keep interrupting each other. That is one of, I mean, I'm going to keep on saying it's one of my favorite sequences. Like there is this great improvisation in this movie and that's Kristen Wiig. I mean, I think that the way they play it where it doesn't get too, like, again, put two guys there. I love Step Brothers. It's one of my favorites uh, as well. Like, it's a movie that really, really makes me laugh. I love um, that movie too. It's so good. But they're good. acting like 13-year-olds. And here they're acting yes. like grown-ups. Yes. And it's like, it's not overt. Like, it's not too, it's not like, it's believable. Like, it's a little, and in that, like, Oh, it makes it so much better because they're not losing all decorum. Like they're not just being it's not just becoming like a crazy sketch movie where there's no uh, consequences. Yeah, and I, yeah. They're not far laying out. It's like them trying to keep it together. And like yes. the agony of Kristen trying to keep it together is so painful to watch. And that toast scene. It is the beginning of how this film feels like so many of my own personal like worst nightmares. You know, like her toast that she gives at the beginning is fine. 
Like it is not a bad toast. Like she doesn't go up there and she's like, I'm a nervous, like flibberty gibbet. Oh, I don't know what to say. Oh, help me out. You know, she gives kind of like a respectful two sentence, like, I love you guys. This night's about you. I toast to you. Like an absolutely reasonable toast that just gets like topped. You know, it's not like she sucks. It's like she did her part of the job. Somebody else just gets like an A++++. And that's so uncool. I think there's something also here about in this movie about wealth. Oh, very much. You know, an underlying thing about how can you compete when someone can afford to do it better than you? Like Maya's not like taken in by wealth. Like, I mean, she appreciates the gift that Kristen gives her. Like, it's such a beautiful gift, like all their favorite things in the box. And, you know, there's something so personal and and endearing about that. But when you compare it next to uh, an all expense paid trip to France, like you're like, oh, wow. Like, you know, it's like and not to say that wealth wins out, but it's hard to compete against wealth. And I think we are. That's another part of this movie, too. It's sort of like, how do you compete in a world where you you literally are just out before you even get there? You're out like, you know, there's no there's no way you can match up. And I think her problem in this movie is trying. Like she's fighting a battle she can't win with the with somebody else's tools. And when she actually like commits to who she is in their relationship and not trying to be perfect, uh, but but trying to just lead with love, she's always going to get the right thing. Does that make sense? But she doesn't, you know, right? like yeah. she tries to compete with love. She's like, here's everything you ever loved from being a kid, the Sour Patch Kids. And it, that is the best she can give. And right. it doesn't work because she well, gets topped by Paris. Well, yes. But I guess what I'm saying is like to be confident in yourself. And I, yeah. and like, you know, and I guess what I'm saying about that. And like, when I look at this, I go like, and be confident. I can't afford to buy you a trip to Paris. I would love to, but I can't. But she's she's almost letting those things like she's she's equating like this whole battle of like who's the better friend, the wealthy friend or the person that you have this relationship with for a long time. And can you enjoy both and can both exist in this world? And certain people give love in different ways, like, you know, the five. Oh, what is it? The uh, the love languages, you know, some people do it through gift giving. Some people do it with touch. Some people do it, you know, um, but I do think that there is. A co- once you are confident enough in yourself that what you've given is enough, you'll be happier, right? Because you don't. I mean, have to feel- I hope so. I think so. <laughs> I, I think so. so. I don't know. Like, I mean, I like that this part of the movie is really personal to any Momo. Like, she's talked at the time, you know, when she was writing this movie with Kristen Wiig, like she had been a bridesmaid seven times like, mm. in the last year or two because she had a lot of friends, because she like has a lot of cousins and relatives. And she was really broke, you know, and this is her describing like how broke she is. And uh, I would go to all these fancy, you know, bridal, you know, bridesmaid things. And I, uh, at one point my door swelled shut. So I was, had to go in and out of my apartment through the hole next to my air conditioner in these dresses. In a bridal dress? <laughs> I would. And the going in is like your nose, you're going, your yeah. nose diving. Yeah. Going into the apartment. So um, I was in these dresses and uh, going in and out of this hole in my apartment. And then I had uh, the same car that Kristen's character drove uh, in the movie. It was like an old Mitsubishi Mirage. That was based that, on your car. It was based on my car. It was uh, given to me by my grandfather. My grandfather passed away and I got the car. <laughs> So it's like, we didn't give it to you. He passed away and you got and it. I got the car. Yeah, I had yeah. three of my grandparents' cars after that was just that's what happened. 
they, everybody felt sorry for me. They would just give me stuff. Anyhow. All um, this will be yours. Yeah. <laughs> Someday yes. this Mitsubishi Mirage yeah. Yeah. Yeah, will I be would, yours. I would pull up to these fancy country clubs in this car, and, like, I had both rearview mirrors hanging up, and I tried to duct tape one of them on, and I, I was, thought maybe I should write this down because I don't know what else to do about how I feel. Yeah. I was, okay, I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to bring this up on the podcast. But, like, every psychodrama that Kristen Wiig is going through in this movie just feels so personal to me. Because I feel like, I feel like I slept in the day that they taught you how to be, like, a classy friend. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The day that they, like, taught you stuff about, like, how to be, like, a classy woman who knows how to curl your hair, who knows what shoes to wear, and, like, what to give people for, like, presents. Like, I miss that somehow. And I've been trying to learn it as an adult by studying my friends, and it is so hard, and I feel like I constantly screw it up. And it's, like, this active, like, anxiety in my life. And being the person who is the I will take you to the weird Brazilian restaurant that will make people throw up because my love language is finding something cool and not necessarily knowing what to buy people is like a nightmare. Like I'm actually living this nightmare right now with like a group of my really old friends. Um, we get brunch once a month. Um, the last two times that I picked the brunch place, people didn't like their food and I wanted to die. You oh know, like God, I tried yeah. really hard and like they just were like, oh, they forgot my egg. And I was like, oh, God, it's all my fault. Like I get very it's all my fault about stuff like that. And then literally this weekend we had another brunch and I um, I had forgotten that it was one of the girls' birthdays. And so like the girl whose birthday it is, um, she got there first and then I got there second. And she was like, we hugged and she was like, nobody remembered my birthday. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I was like, ah, blah, blah, blah. And talking about her birthday and giving her a hug. And then it was like living in a nightmare movie because every time somebody else showed up at brunch, they had brought her, they brought her a present and they remembered. And I was like the person who had clearly obviously forgotten. Mm. And I just sat there the whole brunch wanting to die because I had forgotten it was her birthday. And so... Uh, I don't know where I'm going with this except sort of just like apologizing out loud because I hate that I am still this kind of person. But to see Kristen Wiig in this movie just failing in all of the ways that I find absolutely the way that I would fail is like my nightmare. You know, well, because do you like I don't, I'm sure a lot of people out there have had like the experience of having friends who are like a little bit better off than you or like they made their money before you made some money. And so like I mean, in my 20s, the first time one of my female friends took me out to dinner. It was like the nicest thing anybody had ever done in my life. I didn't know female friends took each other out to dinner until I was like 23. Right. And then like being so touched by that and like trying to then like take my female friends out to dinner. But it, there's like this whole code of like money that I feel like I've been very slow to learn. And so I don't know. Yeah. What am I doing? This is not a therapy session. No, but, but no, but I'm no, turning I, it into a therapy no, session. No, I'm actually listening to it and I want to like respond not in a way to... Um, devalue it at all because I think Amy that's exactly how we all feel right we always feel like oh my god why didn't I do this like that person sometimes we are the people I mean sometimes I am the person like fuck yeah I nailed that and then other times like motherfucker why didn't I do like it could be as simple as I didn't bring a bottle of something and then I see somebody come over to my house I'm like oh they did that or you know yeah. um you know there there are these things where I'm like I thought I had it under control like you know I want to be on top of things, but we will never, we'll never always be on top of things, but we will always have those moments where we feel like we like, all right, here's a perfect example. Um, 
I'm doing a show at Largo. Largo here in Los Angeles. It's our first kind of big show. And I was putting together the flyer for it. And I left somebody's name off the flyer. Somebody who I've been performing with for mm, 10 years. And I... I but I sent out the flyer that I made and I felt immediately like oh my god uh, I just fucked up like I like it, I just felt so embarrassed that like and I'm sure the person didn't even take it in or if they did I like I would never want them to feel like they were not a part of the the show or the thing and and we all have those moments where we it's not even that we are fuck ups it's just like we have we all fuck up we fuck up I fuck up with my kids I fuck up with my wife I fuck up with my friends hopefully it evens out and I'm probably, I hope to land in the less fuck up than fuck up time. 75, 25, I'll take that. Uh, but I'm probably more like, you know, in the 60, 40 times, but you know, uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's like, um, I don't know. I just, I, I think you're, what you're hitting on is yes, we've all been at that table. We've all picked that wrong place. We've all sat at somebody else when they've done something better or you follow up somebody or you're, you know, a gift gets given and then a better gift is given. Like there are these moments that we are, there is a, an unspoken competition between friend groups. I wouldn't say it's between friends, but like when you're in, when you're presenting your friendship in front of other people, it is, uh, it is bound to, uh, bound to make you feel self-conscious because but that's also saying that like there's only one way to be a friend and there's only one way to be with people and then there's not no it's true it's true and i think that's why the stakes of this movie i find just so compelling it's not about like you're a bad person be a good person it's like you are attempting to be a good person and you really are trying to be a good person but it's completely hard and nobody can be that great at it all the time Absolutely. Absolutely. And to just expand it out, I think, you know, we're talking about this character of Kristen Wiig and, you know, and Maya and their friendship. But what this movie also does is paints some very interesting pictures of the friend group. We're talking about the friend group. Like, what is the friend group? And, you know, I think anyone who's been to a bachelor party, a bachelorette party, you are put into these positions where you are meeting people sometimes for the first time. It's it's this um, this thing that brings together all parts of your life. And I think we all work very hard on keeping some of those parts separate. Well, yeah, these are my work friends. These are my these are my, you know, my friend, my family friends. This is my, you know, and and when you have to intermingle not only do you have to play different roles, but you also are subjected to people that you wouldn't normally hang out with. And then you have to kind of figure out what your role is there. And I think that they do a great job of painting these amazing characters. I mean, Wendy's character of this mom with teenage boys, when she first comes onto the scene, like it's as far as improv is concerned, it's one of the best uh, movies as far as like, everyone's got a game. They just come into the scene and they play their game. And it's like, Every time Wendy's on camera, she's going to have a point of view about, I want to get fucked up. I'm like, it's not like I hate my husband or I hate my kids. It's like, I need to get away from my husband and kids. They're driving me crazy. And then it's like, and Ellie is coming from the point of view of just being like, everything is perfect. Everything is great. The the, the trip to Disney World and like the Pixar themed, uh, you know, uh, shower, like she's in her game. And, you know, Melissa McCarthy, obviously a star making role here where she just obliterates yeah, like Melissa McCarthy uh, gave an interview. She was talking about like 
how his process went. Like he had dinners individually with every single person in the cast. They talked about their character really intensively, just kind of one-on-one. And then they did two weeks of rehearsing where just everybody got to know each other. I think they even went to Vegas and got drunk. You know, we had we had the luxury of two weeks of rehearsing and improvising before we started shooting. So, I mean, which was just such an incredible luxury. And so by the time we were actually, the first day of shooting, we all knew each other really well. We knew each other's characters. We'd been laughing for two weeks and like making each other, you know, we were interviewing each other in character. And like, it was just so fun that, you know, I think, I think there's something reads on camera about that. I think instead of just taking six known people and shoving them together, it's like they cast everyone for the part and I think that's what's, you know, so great about Judd and Paul and Kristen and, you know, Annie Mummel, I know, really fought to get the people that they wanted in. And it just, it works. It's like you don't have to have somebody bizarrely famous. You have to have the right person for that part. And I think, I think that's what this movie did. And, and it's a game changer, I think. Melissa McCarthy is the only character in this movie that is not allowed or is allowed the most flexibility not to exist in this world. Like, you know, she, like whether it's taking all the dogs, but then redeems herself. I shouldn't say redeems herself because she's fucking hilarious and MG. But she, with that moment with uh, Kristen Wiig on the couch where she kind of has like a, a tough love moment with her, which is like reveals her a little bit more. We don't know exactly what makes her tick or anything, but she's got this like kind of bombastic, uh, intense energy. Hi, I, I can't get off the couch. I got fired from my job. I got kicked out of my apartment. I can't pay any of my bills. My car is a piece of shit. Uh, I don't have any friends. Um, the last you know time what I, I find interesting about that, Annie, it's interesting to me that you have, you have absolutely no friends. You it's know why it's interesting? Here's a friend standing directly in front of you, trying to talk to you, and you choose to talk about the fact that you don't have any friends. You know what I no. mean? No, nope. I don't think you want any help. That's I think you want to have a little pity party. Oh. Yeah, I think Annie wants a little pity party. Is that what you want? You're an asshole, Annie. Oh my God, what are you doing? You're an asshole. I'm life, huh? Life bothering you? Yes, oh, that's I'm life, what are you Annie. Doing? I'm life, Annie. Oh, what, what are you doing? What are you, Megan? You better learn to fight because life will. Yeah? Megan. Life is gonna. I'm life and I'm gonna bite you in the ass. Ow! Ow! Megan. It's not me. Megan. I'm your life. Oh Turn oh over. God. I'm trying to get you to fight for your <clears throat> shitty life. And you won't do it. You just won't stop do it. it. You stop slapping yourself. Stop slapping yourself. I'm your life, Annie. I'm your shitty little oh. Sorry. Nice hit. That is the iconic character. I mean, that, that is the career-making character. That is the breakout star from this movie, hands down. Uh, she's so funny, but there's also, like, a moment where... Doesn't she say that they killed somebody? Or they found a dead body? Like, there's some, like, crazy moment, like, right at the end where she comes up to her. And she says something so... Like, I was like, oh, wow, like that. You can clearly tell that that was an improvised moment, Um, but she can get away with it all. Like, she's the real like she's the craziest one, but they all represent all these people that is in a friend group. And how do you get along with all of them? Because they all don't fit. It's all like it's all rogue jigsaw puzzle pieces. And you're like, make a puzzle that works out of this. It's like, well, they're all there's no edges here, you know, or or there are all the pieces are edges like, you know, like you it's hard to make that work. I mean, we should compare, I think, her character with Zach Galifianakis in The Hangover, right? Mm -hmm. Because to me, this film coming out two years after The Hangover, coming out the same year as the sequel of The Hangover, it feels like you can map her character onto that pretty well, right? Like you're the wild card, you're loud, you're the one who's in the group because you're related to somebody. And I have to say, this is not a diss on Melissa McCarthy. I feel like 
Zach Galifianakis's character in The Hangover like fits into and amplifies the world of that film. Yeah. But I feel like Melissa McCarthy here, her character throws it off to me often. Like yeah. not all the time. I think that like scene that she has with Kristen Wiig on the couch where she's telling her to fight for her life. Yeah. Is like one of the scenes that makes this film. It's the bombastic performance. And that's why I wanted to kind of start off this whole podcast talking about how great Kristen Wiggins is in this movie, because this is a, a masterful performance that isn't as showy as, as like a giant comedy character, but yet it is all of that. Yeah. Cause to me, my issue with the Melissa McCarthy performance, it really kind of just comes down to one sequence, which is the airplane sequence. Okay, the tell whole me thing why. of her like hitting on her husband, doing it in like the crassest, weirdest way of like barricading the door with her legs. Like, but the way she hits on him in that sequence is like the moment where I think you're supposed to kind of laugh at her more for being like gross and weird. And it doesn't quite feel like it fits in with the character who has like a top secret intelligence security clearance that she says she does later oh, on I in the forgot. film. Oh, I forgot, yeah. Like, it feels like it's just done for shock value. And yeah. it feels like, to me, it takes away from all of the emotional drama that's actually happening elsewhere in that scene. You know, like Kristen Wiig having her meltdown, trying to fit in on this plane. The brilliant comedy of her saying she sees, like, an old colonial woman on the airline. Like, it takes away from the scenes of... uh Ellie Kemper and um, Wendy bonding. Yeah. Which I love. Like, I feel like there's a little bit too, there's a little bit not enough of them in this movie. And I want just a touch more. And Melissa McCarthy just really weirdly seducing her husband. I just, it doesn't fit. Well, I will say that this is a scene where it feels like they let the cameras roll on each seat. And then they just took and mixed all the stuff together because they're all separate beats, right? Like the only thing that is the most important beat is Kristen Wiig has to get so drunk. And that sequence is really great. By the way, I just love actors who play drunk well. And I will let Paul Feig speak to how well Kristen Wiig plays being drunk. It's dangerous thing in the world for an actor to play drunk um, because it's so easy to be cartoonish with it. And my only advice is always when you're drunk, the thing you lose control of is your lower back. So it's a lot of like leaning and this kind of stuff. But everybody who's drunk doesn't think they're drunk. And so they don't try to act drunk. And so that's really the key. But she had, yeah, she had a major major task to be both high and drunk at the same time. But that's why it was so much fun. One of my favorite things that Kristen does in this scene, I don't know why it makes me laugh, is this weird hip swing she does when she arrives. This is what makes me laugh. It's just such a weird thing. But that's, you know, again, that goes back to like, it's just funny being drunk because you kind of think you're in control of your body and you're doing these weird things. So the genius of Kristen Wiig. I think that this is where Melissa McCarthy gets to live outside of the bubble. Like you said, like she's a little bit more heightened than everybody else. You know, the the movie was supposed to have a whole giant sequence in Vegas. Like Paul Feig, they scouted Vegas scenes and they were going to have a whole bachelorette party in Vegas. But then when The Hangover came out, they're like, oh, fuck, we can't we can't do we can't top that. We got to we have to get out of Vegas. So in a weird way, the whatever that sequence was, because I imagine from a plot perspective, you had to end the same way. They needed yeah, to kind I of heard do a little a, bit about what it was. Oh, yeah. What was it? Um, It was that they were going to go to Vegas and that. Kristen Wiig was going to blow the absolute last bits of her money trying to compete with uh, Rose Byrne, okay. trying to like buy drinks and shots and like lose every little last cent that she has. And then it was going to climax when they go to a male strip club. And I think 
a male stripper's ball sweat was going to drip into Kristen Wiig's mouth. Ooh. I think that was the big joke. By the way, just talking about like big moments like that, because I want to get back to this point. Like, you know, I think Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo, their idea for the film was to do more subtle jokes, right? And it's been kind of documented that I think that Paul and Judd wanted some bigger moments, which is why you get a, a scene uh, like that potentially that opening scene or that opening sex scene. And then, but more importantly, the shitting, the, uh, the sick scene. But I think where it works is the subtlety that Kristen plays in that moment. Like, so it's not just a gross out. We're all shitting and puking on each other. It, I had to watch that through my hands. It was so visceral and real, but it's like Kristen would getting sweatier and sweatier every time the camera cuts to her and just, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And a different movie would play that in a very different way. And I think even with the ball sweat there, like that sounds gross, but I imagine the way that you would play it would elevate it a little bit. Oh, like you I think just, it'd be an elevated ball sweat? I do because I think that that shitting and puking is actually, yes, it's gross out. It's big. It's a big giant ass set piece, but it is, it has funnier moments in it than just like, blah, blah. we've all seen the everyone pukes scene. Like I feel like I've seen everyone pukes on each other uh, I don't even know where, but I, I just I feel like I've seen that in a in a film or something. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that they just play it a little bit more real. Like what would happen if that actually really did happen? And uh, well, they put the fulcrum of that joke not just on the puking, but on Kristen Wiig's insistence that it's not her fault because yes. it's the one thing she was proud of that she actually picked out so far. Yes, yes. And like that showdown of her and Rose Byrne, where Rose Byrne is like, "You don't look well." And Kristen will not admit that she doesn't. I feel fine. Are you sure it wasn't that gray kind of lamb or you ate a lot of that weird chicken? Was it that? No. Um, I, I feel fine. I think you'd just feel better if you threw up. I don't know. I don't have to throw up. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Get away from me! You're not sick. No, no. To me, that's the moment where her character turns a little bit, right? Because yeah. up until this point, she's been playing it really straight, thinking that things are going to be okay. You know, yes, like the tennis scene got a little bit hostile. Uh, oh, my God. The, the tennis hitting. scene. I forgot yeah. about that. That was so yeah. great. But, you know, this is where she's like putting on her false front for real. Like she's absolutely not going to let this go. You know, she's being now as fake in her friendship with Maya as she was in the opening with John Hamm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when you know that she's not able to be herself anymore in this friendship. Yeah. Um, and I love that scene. Like, apparently Kristen Wiig was, like, spraying herself with an Evian spritz between every take just to get wetter and wetter. And it, she does look truly ghastly. I mean, the makeup in this film, 2011 now looks very dated to me in terms of makeup. Everybody's so silvery. There's a yeah. lot of just, like, deathly silver on people's eyes. Huh. Um and like her looking so absolutely gray and corpse-like is oh, horrific. It's so beautifully shot. Like that just gets worse and worse and worse. And maybe now we're getting to sort of what I think we've been missing culturally when we talk about the bridesmaids effect. Because I think when we talk about the bridesmaids effect, we're kind of meaning like big comedy films with lots of women in them. Right. Which is great. Like bring them on, bring them on. But what I'm realizing is even though we've gotten more big comedy films with lots of women in them, and some of them have been really good, like Girls Trip, I think what we haven't gotten is more films that are good at what Bridesmaid is also good at, mm -hmm. which is like being a comedy film that leads with like 
empathy in situational comedy. Like right. there aren't a lot of like catchphrases in this movie. You no, know, like what? Like no. you smell like pine needles. Like this isn't a movie that's very like joke, 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 joke. This is a movie about living in the moment of what is happening to these characters and how horrible everything is. And like, it's hilarious, but it's not joke written in that same kind of way. No, it, it definitely plays to, I think that like, when you think about Kristen Wiig on Saturday Night Live, she is someone who her best characters don't have catchphrases. They're not, they are a point of view, but they're very specific. Like, yeah, like, you know, character, character, characters. yeah. You know, I'd, I'd almost say that that's like a Will Ferrell thing, too. Like, Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig, I, I see them cut from very much the same mold. I think they like to be bizarre and funny and weird, but it's not like they're like going, all righty then, you know, or like, you know, it's like they're not they're not from the repetition uh, thing, you know. I, yeah, I think, you they're know, not Mike Myers' Saturday Night Live. They're like yeah. their own generation of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Where Kristen Wiig, to me, is, I think, of a good... Other identification for her is like the John C. Riley of it all, you know, because yeah. she's a serious actress, I also believe. Yeah. You know, she has like real range. And I think Will Ferrell does too. I'm not trying to cut him short, but like John C. Riley, a thousand percent, is one of my favorite actors who exists on this planet right now. And I think maybe this is what I find frustrating about the aftermath of Bridesmaids is I wouldn't say, like, in the 10 years since Bridesmaids came out, I mean, I feel like just even thinking about casting, you know, like the type of casting that felt like the default when this movie came out versus the type of casting that feels like the default now, I mean, it feels radically different. Like the default kind of casting back at 10 years ago feels like really out of date. I feel like we right. know when it comes to like characters or films that are like centered around women, centered around actors of color. Like we have grown, I think, a ton. And I do think this film helped with that just by saying there's money here. But when it comes to getting more movies like Bridesmaids, I feel like it's been a really bifurcated effect because... I think we've gotten a lot of movies with like Melissa McCarthy and Rebel Wilson where they're like big comedies where they fall down a lot. And I like am so frustrated by those because I also will stick up for Rebel Wilson all the time. I think she right. can do really great stuff. But we've gotten like the they fall down a lot comedies. They get hit by car comedies, you know, so we've gotten like big ones that take my least favorite parts of this movie and run with it. And then we've gotten a lot of Sundance movies where Kristen Wiig walks around looking really sad and nervous. I think I've seen like nine movies where Kristen Wiig walks around looking really sad and nervous. But we haven't gotten a movie that has these things combined in a way that works, where we have like an emotionally driven comedy that's really funny. And I still feel, feel I feel like this film is still really singular for that. You're right. I think this movie is going to go down in many ways because it is a complete film. It's something that I think we all experience, you know, whenever something works, people are like, Oh, that works. Like, Oh, sex in the city works. Women want to go see movies, you know? And it's like, Oh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Oh, bridesmaids works. Well, it's Judd Apatow. Okay. So we'll, you know, we'll double down that. Or, or, or you go like, Oh, uh, you know, girls trip works, you know, black women want to go see movies. Like everyone's always surprised. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you make something good, people want to go see it. Like, and I think we're going to be seeing that, you know, in your least favorite example coming up with like, um, Shang-Chi, the, the new Marvel film, you know, it's like, all right, here's somebody that we don't know very well as a lead, but we're putting the Marvel thing behind him. And he's an Asian actor right in the forefront. And, and people are gonna be like, oh, wow, I guess people are open to seeing Asian superheroes. But we didn't learn that lesson from uh, when, you know, we just saw crazy rich Asians just a couple of a little while ago. We're always constantly surprised that people want to see stuff. And then it's as if 
the person that took the, I guess I would describe it like this. It's as if uh, you're cheating off of someone and this, and people finance the next ideas by the people who just like looked over the shoulder of someone in class and were like, yeah, yeah, this is about right. I think this is why it works. And it's never, that's why it works. It always works because it's a good story with good characters and it's a relatable content, not because you're trying to duplicate something. And I think, you know, we talk about that with Die Hard and we've, we talked about that with Speed and everything like that. Like the, there's plenty of movies that are, you know, a singular location with an unlikely hero, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but what makes them succeed or fail is really at the end of the day, the the plot and the story and the acting. Um, and what makes them fail is the millions of clones. You know, the Mean Girls. We talked about this too. It's like, well, just make another Mean Girls. Well, it's like, well, but there's care here. Like, there's. A, it's not like it's not a factory. And I think we constantly, especially with comedies, are are photocopying things. Like, you know, there's so many things that feel like The Hangover. There's so many things, you know, and, uh, but you're right. There's less things that feel like Bridesmaids. I think there's not many, you know, movies, uh, you know, big female comedy ensemble movies. You know, you could talk no, about there really isn't. Bad Moms yeah. is a huge hit. Which you know. was good, but it doesn't quite have the heart of this one. No, you know, the and I think character performances. I mean, I like those films, but it's different. Amy, you know, Amy Poehler made that uh, movie, that Napa Valley movie, the the wine country movie, right? Um, yeah, I never saw that. And I actually know. haven't seen Barb and Star, which is terrible. I oh, didn't, I didn't realize that Annie Momolo also wrote it until prepping for this episode. Somehow yeah. I completely missed oh, that one. You get ready for, to me, like that is... Like this movie, if I'm, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but I, I believe that this movie was supposed to star the two of them. And, uh, and it was, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, she was not able to be in the movie for, you know, I'll let you all do your research on why. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, to me, that's a great tragedy of this movie because I think she is incredibly funny. Uh, and an amazing writer, and the two of them have such a, a strong sensibility that I would have loved to have seen that uh, together. You know, I'd love to have seen them. No, I totally agree. I think there's one movie that just came out last year that captures some of what I love about Bridesmaids. There's this movie that came out this year called Shiva Baby by a young director called Emma Seligman. Have you seen this movie? No, I've heard so much great stuff about it. <gasps> It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And it's super character driven like this. I mean, the the short, short, short setup of it is that there's a girl who's working as like a sugar baby Mm -hmm. uh, as she's sort of college age. And um, she's forced to go to a shiva with her family, with her parents who are very like uh, overpowering. And her client is there with his wife. And it's just the most awkward day of like these people roaming around a house and like eating bagels and fighting. And it's amazing. It's an absolutely amazing, like super tense film. The way that you feel your heart just goes out to Kristen Wiig in this movie and you want to like protect her, even as you're like, what are you doing? This movie is like that. It's like if you took the tension of uncut gems and put it inside a suburban house, like that's what you get. It's so amazing and really, really funny, really funny. Well, I mean, I, I well, I'm excited now. You've got you've piqued my interest. I was just thinking about something you said too about just the larger idea of like, well, we haven't gotten these movies. Well, you know, the truth is, 
Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo have not written a movie together since then. It's not like they, like, you know, they took a shot. The next shot was Barb and Star, like, you know, and uh, Annie Mumolo yeah, has... 10 years. What is that? Like, you know, they got yeah. an Oscar nomination for this script. What? I, maybe they've just been really busy. Well, I just think that, like, sometimes you... you tell your story the way that you want to tell your story or when you want to tell your story or how, you know, it takes a while to get these things going sometimes and, and for people to trust in them, which is wild because they're, I mean, you know, it, it's a hard thing. And I, and I think you're right. Like you look at somebody like Paul Feig, you know, Paul Feig right after this movie goes off and makes a handful of, uh, like really big movies, you know, like he goes and the heat beat is huge. And, and then he goes and makes Ghostbusters. A simple favor. A simple, simple favor, just, just yes. Marvelous. And, you know, so, you know, he's gone off and, and made other films. So I, I think that, like, you know, I think he I think he's made a career out of amplifying female voices. And that's a really uh, amazing way that he's gone about doing things. So I think they're, you know, without duplicating himself, like he shouldn't make the next big ensemble comedy. I think the same way that, like, Todd Phillips didn't want to make the next big ensemble comedy uh, you know, like I think you make it once and then you're always going to be compared to it. So you have to try to bob and weave, you know, and make the next thing. And that's why you get something like Girls Trip and, you know, and that or or Bad Moms. And I think those are the movies that do follow in the footsteps. So I, I do think there are movies out there. But this one, in my it's opinion, better. is the best. Is yeah, the best. Is the best. best. But that's the okay. Best. That's okay. I mean, I would declare if I'm allowed to do this on behalf of all female film loving kind, I would declare Paul Feig an honorary female filmmaker. I just feel like he gets it really well. I feel like he understands female friendship. And most people, I think, really screwed up on film. Like, they're not fighting here in Bridesmaids because Kristen Wiig is, like, jealous she's getting married. Like, mm -hmm. that doesn't even come up. You know, it's not about, like, men aren't at the center of the fights in, her, in his movies. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we can go back to our conversation about A League of Their Own, too. Yeah. Like, you know, like another movie that, I mean, that's Penny Marshall, who is a female director but like you know uh but that is another movie where it is about this fr friendship sistership sisterhood you know that i i think is really interesting and i think you know another movie we haven't really talked about but pitch perfect which also had three sequels mm -hmm. you know a, you know and and i think to many people is an incredibly defining you know movie and have we talked about this before that i really like bride wars um, I really, know that you like Bride Wars. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I really like Bride Wars. I actually thought that Bride Wars was a great film about friendship. And I think like people misread that as being like a cat fight in ways that it wasn't. Yeah, like, well, I was confused by the reviews for that movie because I feel like they were missing what it was actually about. I, I think that that movie suffered from and just to put some context on it. Uh, my wife. My wife, again, Borat, two Borats in oh, one show. Oh, that's Borat again. Uh, my wife, um, uh, she uh, she is the co-writer of Bride Wars. Her and Casey Wilson wrote this script, and it did come from that place. And they actually made their own movie, Ass Backwards, as well, that was kind of about uh, female friendship and, uh, and equally very, very funny. I think that, you know, sometimes you get these movies where the stars outweigh the premise and the and the trailer dictates the the perception right i think the trailer is like oh her hair is yellow or you know green or whatever it is and oh i hate you and you feel like these like you know classical music underneath and and you and all of a sudden you lump it in with something that is um less elevated because the trailer is cut to make you remember the movies that are less elevated and you know and then and you walk away and go oh broad wars you know and it's a it's a it's a bummer and it's a movie that actually in many respects just because i lived through that movie through the through the pitch 
all the way to the premiere and now years and years later, the effect it had on so many young women and what they got from it. So, you know, the proof is in the pudding on that movie as far as its legacy. Um, And I've seen it time and time and time again, uh, especially with younger younger women. So um, you're right. And I think it's also a, a little bit of misogyny in there to be like, oh, Kate Hudson and Anne Hathaway. I don't like these girls. And Chris Pratt's in there and he's very funny. Um, it's, it's, you know, I think whenever you do something with brides, you know, oh, weddings, a chick flick. And I think in a weird way that this movie, you know, not directed by a, a female, uh, but like you said, an honorary female director, uh, you know, it, like it had the Judd Apatow stamp of approval on it. So it was like, all right, I'll go see it. It's about brides, but I like those other guys' movies. You know, like it's like <laughs> I, 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 right? Like I think there was an energy to this that it didn't allow itself to be pulled in that direction. You know, it did like it. It actually fought against a trend of my best friend's wedding or runaway bride or uh, twenty-seven uh, dresses. Twenty-seven dresses. You know, thir- go, thirteen going on thirty. Even though that that's not the same, but like it. it it doesn't feel of those movies. I think that you think of about bridesmaids under the banner of knocked up bridesmaids, super bad, like in that world. And, you know, and, and, uh, and maybe like, you know, that's sometimes what you, I don't know, this is a terrible thing to say, but you know, we may live in a society that is incredibly misogynistic and without like a male stamp of approval on it, like Judd Apatow made it with it. It doesn't do as well. You know, uh, which sucks. That sucks because it has nothing to do with the quality. It just has to do with the perception of it. And, uh, you know, that that really bums me out. And I like how that's even folded into this movie, too. When uh, when John Hamm tries to explain what a joke is to Kristen Wiig. Yes. And he's like, come on, Annie, it's humor. Learn about it. I mean, that yeah. is the response to these films from, you know, from the haters with nine Zs. And by the way, Bill Cosby with a Z and an I. Which and, is a, another great prescient running joke in here. I know. And by the way, this movie does a great job of like calling shit out without like hammering it. Like you said, like the joke about the police and stuff like that. Like it just it makes it makes a point, but it doesn't have to belabor it either. Right. Like it's confident enough. It's like what Kristen Wiig's character eventually becomes. It's confident enough to be like, yeah, yeah, we know. We know what's going on. Like, you know, it it, it doesn't need to drill in because remember that movie, The Sweetest Thing? With Christina Applegate and... Uh, I knew you were going to talk about that movie. I was just thinking about it. I was just thinking about how this movie has a joke about periods, but it doesn't have Christina Applegate walking through a grocery store tracking period blood everywhere. Right. And I think that there's this weird thing where it's like, can you be funny? But, well, it's a girl's movie, but it's a, it's still gross out too. Like, you know, there's like this... I, I'm I'm being very like broad right now, but I like... And not to say that that I love all those actresses in that movie, but I feel like there was this energy of like, well, to make a, you got to make a gross. And if you make a gross and the guys will respect you. And this movie is confident enough to have some big set pieces that I think were really good and, and maybe not the original intent of Annie and Kristen, but at the same time, really resting firmly on its laurels of just being a great relationship uh, film. Can I say mm-hmm. that when I first moved to L.A., and I was a very baby film critic. One of my first jobs was screening uh, submissions for Sundance. Mm-hmm. And I did this for a couple of years. It was a really brain destroying job. Um, and one of the years I did it, one of the films I had to screen was that Christina Applegate movie. Oh, wow. And you know, we had to write like, a, we, 
you have to write full notes on every um, right. movie that comes by. Like you can't just be like, eh, eh, good, bad. Like you really fill out a whole right. form. You write paragraphs about it. And that was a movie that I definitely gave like low marks to. And it got into the festival and I felt so destroyed. Oh, it's, it's a bummer. And yeah, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell that story, but it's been a long time. I feel like I can. I think you can tell it. I mean, look, I think, okay, that, you know, it's, but I also think it's hard to figure out like what comedy is. I mean, I went to Sundance of Ass Backwards and, and that movie is a broad movie. That movie is more, that movie has more in common with Barb and Star than it has with Bridesmaids. And I think that people saw Casey and June on the cover in these like pageant dresses and they thought Bridesmaids and then they saw the movie and they're like, oh, this is like goofier and now I'm angry at it. And, you know, it was so interesting when we played in Sundance, it played fine. But then when you take it out of Sundance, like when you go and play a movie in Sundance, you you do it in town and Sundance and then you bring it out to like the people like in a real movie theater about mm-hmm. 40 minutes outside. And when it played in that theater, it gangbusters. Like, and it was interesting that the audience at Sundance wasn't willing to go there with a broad, goofy movie. And it was a bummer because, um, like that movie is not a, that movie is not a gross out movie, Casey and June's movie, but it's like, it's an interesting audience like of what, people think is comedy and what they don't. And I to bring it all back to what you're saying, I think it's like, okay, well, this is going to be our, our, our adult comedy. Cause it, it is really comedy with a K kind of a thing, you know, and it's like, we're going to put it in there, gross people out and they'll love it. You know, I, I went to, I went to, I went to Sundance with a horror comedy too. And it's, it's interesting at playing broad is interesting. Broad doesn't always work uh, for, you know, I don't know, but I think people think it's like, well, it's, it clearly is. This is a joke. This is a joke. This is a joke. And when you have to rely on somebody's sense of humor, like you said, like when you pick a movie for somebody, you want to make sure that you're good and that you didn't lead them astray. And and I think that sometimes uh, the reason why comedies don't get a lot of respect in these things is because these broader films, like you described, are the ones that are going in and not the ones that are a little bit more subtle and where you can say, I don't think it's funny. And I could say, I think it is funny. And that's what comedy is. I think it's it's subjective to your point of view and your taste there's not one general comedy although this one yeah you and I are not subjective and we're talking about is this going up into space and if you had asked me two days ago I would have been like bridesmaids that feels really tokenism like we're just putting it up there as a token and now I'm like no, this movie is excellent. And actually, I think it is a strong space contender. I, I think it's a strong space contender only because we've not seen a single movie like this. I think this movie is uh, is generational, like in the sense of like, it, like this is a relatable film. It's so fun. It's got amazing performances. And like we talked about this with Hangover last week, the idea like, well, what is this? You know, Hangover was a movie of the moment. I think this is a movie that is of... Of a of a of a full canon, like I, I didn't know. Like I was like, oh, can you ever put a comedy movie on this list that doesn't get old or feel old or feel dated? And I and I and I'm gonna put my money down that this is t- this is ten years later and this one feels as fresh as it when it came out. I agree. I agree. I put it up there. What did people not like this movie when it came out? Uh, many people did. I'm going to read a uh, review by a person who's one of my favorite people, one of my favorite friends, uh, who's a bachelorette party I threw. Um, 
who wrote a review that is listed as Rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, has some very strong negative things to say about it. Um, I like it more than she does, but her reservations are expressed so well that I really did want to read this review because I think it is a great review. Um, and that is, of course, uh, the great Karina Longworth. And this is a review she wrote oh, of wow. Bridesmaids for the LA Weekly. At first, she opens her review with kind of this like background of how the film has been positioned as what she calls, and I'll lead into her here, quote, a referendum on the viability of women in Hollywood comedy. These high stakes manifest themselves on screen in a kind of multiple personality disorder. One, the kind of raucous, visual, and vacuous comedy that plays well in a trailer. The other, a more nuanced approach, foregoing immediate spectacle and punchline for character detail that pays dividends as the film rolls along. Or, in more cynical terms, the former tosses meat to the traditional male comedy audience, while the latter wins over ladies who look to rom-coms for self-identification. Um, she says that Bridesmaids has a split personality, and that one of the examples is that it's a film that thematically advocates for clear-eyed, delusion-free personal responsibility, while narratively hinging on the realization of a fairy tale wedding. And that at its best, Bridesmaids can reconcile its two minds. It merges high-concept, skit-length paced comedy with naturalistic conversation. She says that the extended airplane scene finds right. common ground between Robert Altman and Jerry Lewis. Mm. But she says that many of the chaotic set pieces that catalog Annie's self-destruction have a kind of dumb crassness that works against bridesmaids, often smart, highly class conscious de deconstruction of female friendship and competition. Comedy of humiliation is one thing. A fat lady shitting in a sink is another. Bridesmaids needs to be all things to all quadrants places an unfair burden on a film that when not bending over backward to prove that girls can play on the same conventional comic field as boys successfully dismantles both romantic and bromantic comedy formulas. The supposed great experiment in femcom bears the distinct scars of having been quote unquote fixed out of fear or financial imperative by and for dudes. It's an interesting point of view and I, I love her writing and I think it's you know, it it's worthy of like taking it in. And I wonder what she thinks of it now. I also will say, does she fall into a trap here by looking at this film in a way that it's never meant to be intended? Like, this is not a referendum on, you know, can women be, you know, like, or like, you know, it's, I think that sometimes these films carry so much weight on their shoulders because of the perceived nature of how we go into them. Like, what is this a response to? And when we take that baggage into it and it's unfair because we don't take that baggage into seeing, you know, free guy, we go, Oh, yeah. free guy. It's going to be funny. I like free. I, I, I get it. Like we don't take like, Oh, this is a referendum on, you know, can white men still be funny in an age of political correctness? No, we just say, Oh, it's Ryan Reynolds. He's hilarious. I'm in, yeah. you know, and, but, but if you go like, but if you go like girls trip, you go like, well, <laughs> studio is like, can we make a female hangover? It's like, well, wait, women go on bachelorette parties too. And, and why can't that story be told? And why is everything, everything that someone who is not like Chris Pratt being the star of guardians of the galaxy is not looked at as harshly as uh, Simu Liu, who is like the star of Shang-Chi, you know, like, but they both have been in television shows that were popular, but like, it's, oh, can he open a movie? But at Guardians, it was like, oh, well, yeah, it, the, here it is, James Gunn. You know, so we always, I think, in the media, put this unfair comparison on anything that is different. And I say different between basically being like non-white male 
uh, you know, or like compete. Like it's like, well, what is what is it compared to that? Where I think we have to start eliminating that comparison and just go like, this is a comedy. Like this is a comedy. This is a superhero movie. This is. It's not. Yes, it's great that there is representation, and I think that it's fine to acknowledge. But representation is just not a reaction to you know, something. It's not like, okay, we got to now make an uh, an Asian-led superhero movie. Oh, we got to make, uh, you know, a female hangover. Now, I think that there's obviously part of the business that the, whoever's signing the check looks at it and you can sell it to them and they get it. But it's if it's made with that kind of uh, disgusting, just let's make a dollar, it's never going to be good. I mean, these stories are true. These stories are what people want to tell. And and you'll get the right people to tell them. Does that make sense? I mean, it does. I mean, I feel like we're describing two things. Like, you're describing how you want the world to be. And right. I agree with that. I want the world to be that way, too. And I also very much remember what it was like in 2011 when it was like, buy a ticket to Bridesmaids, even if you don't go. Like, that was a thing that right. was happening, you know, just so people can know it has a big box office number, just so it can open it. I think it opened at number two. Like, You have to do this for womankind. And I feel like they tried to do that on a lot of movies after Bridesmaids, too. You have to buy a ticket to Wonder Woman or else we'll never get another female movie ever again. And I I resent that sort of like pressure, but I also resent that I deep down think it's a little bit true or has been. And I want it to stop being true. Right. But yet even this year, like I felt like there was weird gloating strange reactions to the fact that a movie like in the Heights didn't have a big theatrical number in the middle of a pandemic. Like, I feel like we're still framing outlier movies as though they deserve to be punished when they don't do well. Like you can't have a musical starring people of color. Look how badly it did. And and like, and I, I guess like box office pundits need some sort of headline. I mean, I kind of know half of these people and they're struggling for any way to make what they do seem interesting, but I think it's, so self-defeating to the business at large. Right. And I can't wait to be like completely past it. I feel like we're a little bit more past it than we were with when this film came out. And I think like looking at it again, 10 years later, outside of this conversation, to me underscores what a terrific film it is. Once we've gotten, once we're out, out of the fog of having to see it through the lens of like politics and representation in Hollywood, but I don't think we're entirely there yet. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm even now you keep seeing people be like, well, what are the films that are being released to like Disney Plus? And why is it mostly like the female led films and what's happening here and what's going on with this? Well, and- I think that everything in our world, unfortunately, is like, what is this? We live in a culture. I have to get it out quick. So what is this in relation to this? And we uh, we just compare things and it, it, it devalues it because either we're comparing it to something like, for example, and I have not seen this yet. But uh, Nine Perfect Strangers, right? Um, that is being compared to White Lotus. They're not, they're not the same thing, but yet White Lotus was successful. People liked it. That movie, that show comes out the week after White Lotus ends, and they go, well, let's look at it through the lens of White Lotus. Well, that's a fucking unfair comparison. Like, if you want to do that in a year, do it in a year. Yeah. But like, When it's, it's maybe a, reacting to White Lotus, but yeah. when something's in the can anyway, like, what's happening? No, these things were made at the same time. And, you know, and it's like, well, they did it better. Or they did it worse. Or they did this. It's too soapy. It's too that. And it sucks because um, it just sucks because we, I think, are forced to sell things 
in a way, we have to always be selling things because our attention spans are so short that what can we say? Do you like Schitt's Creek? Well, this is Schitt's Creek, but Indian. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, it, but do you like this? But, you know, it's like, it's, it, you know, it's like, it's, it's, um, it's a very like bizarre yeah. way that we've just gotten to a world I mean, where I everything understand. is something else. Yeah. But I get elevator pitches if you're trying to get something greenlit, but we don't need to yeah. be dissecting our media like it's an elevator pitch. Well, I think we have to look to our, we have to look to our critics and our, and our, and our cultural tastemakers as people to be like, why are you like, introduce me to these people? Like, cause I want to meet, I want to meet the cast of Hangover. I want to meet the cast of Bridesmaids in my next films for the next 10 years because I love them in this. You know, uh, I made a movie called Blackball that like went to the South by South by Southwest. We won the audience award there and it was an improv movie all about Blackball. And it was like me and Rob Corddry and Rob Riggle and um, Rob Hubel and Ed Helms and Jack McBrayer and all these uh, amazing people. And it actually very much helped launch all of us early on. It was, a you know, and, and I think that, uh, all this to say that I think that we need to always be expanding and trusting our audience that they'll fall in love with something. If they didn't know this thing, they'll find it. And it's so fulfilling for people to take chances. And I think a lot of the times we're always coming from a reactionary point of view. What is this? How can I, can I enjoy this? Or how am I like, you have to make me like it immediately. I don't know. It's, 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 uh, Whereas I think we're going to be so much more fulfilled by discovery and not knowing everything uh, before we walk in the door. I agree. I can actually squeeze in something while we're like once again solving the industry yeah. uh, right now. I, I had this great moment when I took friends to go see Bridesmaids in the theater the weekend that it came out. Like I'd already seen it and I was like, I, oh, it was actually my brunch friends that I really fucked up with this weekend. I was like, let's go see this movie. And we went to the Vista here in Hollywood. And it was sold out, our screening. And I was just so thrilled. And it was one of those moments where I got to really test what I'm always saying, which is that I absolutely hate pre-buying tickets online or like pre-seat selection because I like the kind of thrill of like lining up and maybe you'll get in. And if you don't get in, you'll buy tickets to something else because I think that's actually healthier for cinema to like have a spillover effect and not be like, well, I didn't get my perfect recliner seat. I'm not going to go see this movie. Um that's all. I actually wasn't really I like going that. anywhere with that. No, Besides I, I, the fact no, that I, like I really, that. I'm like so against, I'm so against online ticket skills because I really do think it kills the, it A, kills the excitement and energy of like lining up and being like, well, fine, we'll just go get some pie and we'll come back and see it in two hours. And because I do think that online ticket sales kill the mid-price movie and I'll have this fight all day because I like this fight and I think it's true. What do you, well... Uh, why? Because people don't. Because people don't go. Oh. They don't. They don't go, and then they won't fall into another th- theater. That's exactly it. Because like it used to be that you would make plans to, you know, yeah. I will use my own personal experience as being a child. You'd get dropped off at the mall, and you'd walk up, and the movie that you wanted to see was sold out, and you would just buy a ticket to another movie. You would like explore, and that was why we had I, such a thing as yeah. counter programming because you'd be like, okay, well. People might try to see that it might be sold out. This will be a good thing. And so you got like decently funded counter programming that was in theaters because you knew that people were going to the movie as the end of to itself. Like my activity is going to the movie with my friend and I wish to do this. And if we can't see what we want to see, we will see something else. And that was healthy for theaters. And now it's like, You'll drive to see it somewhere else or you'll only you're only planning to see a movie. You're not planning to go to the movies in general. 
you make a certain choice. And I think that that has narrowed the box office dollars on opening weekends. I think that it has, is why we have more of a winner take all at the box office. I think it just has siphoned a lot of money out of the industry in general. And I think it's made people be like, well, I want my perfect recliner or else, you know, I hear you. I'm opposed to it. And I know it will make my life more convenient, but more inconvenient. And yet as a parent, I just want to be able to, when I'm, when I go see movies, get, at 7.15, I'm going to see a movie, and I have to because I have to be home to get the babysitter out. So I don't have that flexibility that you get to have. Uh, so I, I like an know. online ticket environment. But I'm going to say one more thing just about I like— I know I'm in the minority. I just want to stand up for this. I, I will say one more thing about all of this stuff. We've also now gotten into this culture of needing to know everything. Like I, I, I was ex- really frustrated with this Spider-Man movie that— that uh, the the sequel, the third one, that just the trailer was released last week, and the energy around this is is Tobey Maguire in it? Is um is William Dafoe coming back? Is Alfred Molina in it? Like, there's like, why are we so like I, we got JB Smooth on the red carpet to admit that uh, Tom Holland is in it with you know whatever, and it's like, why can't we just wait? Why can't we just even mm-hmm. wait to see the trailer? Why can't we even, we know we love this thing, but why do we want to spoil it for ourselves? Why do we want to like immediately know all the twists and the turns before we even get there? And I think the Spider-Man trailer actually did do a great job of like, if you just saw that, great. Um, because it did a great job of setting the premise of what we're about to get in store. But um, I don't know. I, I just think that we're in a weird, we're in a weird time and and Jason Manzoukas rallies about the rants about this all the time, like where fans are dictating the content and mm-hmm. they don't always know that that's the best thing. It's like, all right, do we need to see Zack Snyder's suicide or not Zack Snyder's suicide squad, Zack Snyder's Justice League? No, but look, it's better. It, it, I, I think it's definitively better than the other one that was released. But at a certain point, we can't control everything. Like we can't get everything that we want because I think we stop... Like, uh, this is a bigger issue, I guess. You know, it's like we want so much from our entertainment. And if it's not the thing that we want, we rail it. We get angry at it. And if it's not the thing that we believe in, it's like it's the same way that Ryan Johnson's fucking Star Wars movie. People are like, whoa, they didn't establish that in the force. But everyone forgets that all the things that they established about the force in Empire Strikes Back. You know, it's like as if he didn't think about this or have a reason for it, but it's like you, you know, it's, uh, we just are living in a weird time where we compare everything we, and it's, and we forget the original thing of just discovering and, and liking. And it's more about being let down by our expectations rather than pleasantly surprised by it. <laughs> uh, here, that's, here. that's my rant. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but Amy, this Vote has been a pleasure. For president uh, of Hollywood. Uh, but we are we are now uh, going into our final two weeks uh, of blockbusters, and uh, we got a good one coming up. I mean, this is this is the big one. Should we give a hint? I'll just yeah. give a hint. It goes brom. That's right. Is that top still spinning? <laughs> I don't even remember why the top was spinning. I just know that we had. A, I read a lot of essays about spinning tops. The movie is Inception. It's Christopher Nolan's uh, biggest non-Batman film. And uh, one of the biggest blockbusters of all time. So we're going to watch it. And you can get that wherever it's streaming. And take a listen to the trailer. There's one thing you should know about me. I specialize in a very specific type of security. Subconscious security. You're talking about dreams. 
Carl has a job offer he would like to discuss with you. Any kind of work placement? Not exactly. We create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their secrets. Then you break in and steal it. Well, it's not strictly speaking legal. It's called Inception. All right, Amy. Uh, two more weeks. Then we break it all down as we en- enter a new phase. And I'm going to actually even suggest that uh, as we enter, well, well, we'll talk about it all. We have a lot coming up here on the show. It's going to be a lot of fun. And if you want to be a guest on Screen Test, which is our movie game show, uh, let us know. Go on our Discord uh, or email us at unspooledpod.com at gmail.com. Well, unspooledpod at gmail.com. Unspooledpod at gmail.com. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Thank you.